Okay, we are still in the Feast of First Fruits. We thank the Lord for ancient Israel, for the Old Testament, for the laying of the foundation of our life in Jesus Christ. We're not independent, separate entities, islands to ourselves. In fact, all of human history is tied to one person and the person of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God, the one who, through his heart of creating beings that are better and above animals, or even better and above angels. Who am I talking about? Us. Humanity. Human beings. That is who we are. And we need to come to that place of understanding that we are not just islands to ourselves, or that we have our life and we like it and thank you very much. No, we are part of God's eternal plan. Every one of us, whether we like it or not. But I imagine that by the fact that you are gathered here this morning and we're singing to Jesus the one who came as a man like us, that you're here understanding that, no, I'm not an end to myself, nor am I, would I evaporate and be non-existent after I die. No, the life breath of God is in each one of us. That makes us so much different than any other being on the face of this earth. That's what makes us so precious as human beings, as men, women, children. And so today is a very special day, at least the day that we're acknowledging, Ascension Sunday. Now, you may think that, yes, this pertains to Jesus Christ and when he ascended from earth to heaven. We're still part of that. Every one of us will be lifted up. And if you hear a loud trumpet, a loud blast during this service, we're going to go right through this ceiling and right up into the air. We believe it. We understand it. We know it. This is what is our future. This is our hope. I would like to know what it's like to go right through the ceiling. Ascension Sunday is part of the first fruits that Jesus Christ has opened up the way for us so that we can be part of that great gathering around the throne someday. And you think this is wonderful in this basement room that we're so earthbound, we're so thinking that this is the life that's worth, worth it, but God has something way, way beyond anything that we could imagine and understand. So let's get going on this message before I run out of time. (laughs) Looking at several passages today. And Jesus led his disciples out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually 
in the temple praising God. They had just seen the man that they had walked on earth with. They had been very close as buddies, as men together, going from village to village in different parts of Israel, in the villages and towns. And they had come to know each other very intimately over a period of almost three years. And so because of their closeness to each other, and they had gone through this horrendous time of Jesus being taken captive and being tried, sentenced to death. They watched a horrific execution that is nothing like what our nations these days do to people that they execute. Jesus went through that. Then they saw him dead and he was buried. And then he showed himself to them for a number of days. And during that time, their minds were doing all kinds of twisting and trying to grasp what is this all about? And Jesus shared with them and they understood more and more. And then he leads them to that place where they were so familiar with Bethany, the Mount of Olives, just a mile or a half or so from where Jesus was crucified, where Jesus often took them in the olive groves there on the Mount of Olives, where they prayed together, they spent time, he taught them. This was familiar ground. It was where Jesus' favorite friends, Lazarus and Mary and Martha, lived very near there. So they knew this part of the country. Even though many of them were from up north in the back country in Galilee, they often came down with their Savior, with Jesus, their teacher, to Jerusalem and to that area. And now finally he takes them to this small village on the top of a mountain, the Mount of Olives. And there he's taken up in the air. Incredible, incredible. He's at the right hand of God. And this is repeated over and over and over and over again in the New Testament. And so we're going to repeat it over and over and over again this morning. But each one of them has significance to it. The first one is Matthew 26, 63 to 64. Second is Jesus' ascension in Mark 16, 19. Peter's message at Acts 2. Stephen's testimony in Acts 7. Paul's gospel in Romans 8, which we've already studied a few months ago. Number six, our life in Christ, Colossians 3. And seven, Christ's authority in 1 Peter. And then there's other scriptures as well. But those, that's my main outline of seven points. At the right hand of God. First of all, let's just get this statement in our minds as to what it really means. The right hand of a king or a ruler is a sign of authority. And so with that being risen from the earth as a man and being at the right hand of God, Jesus is taking 
his place of authority, rightfully so. We're going to understand a little bit more about how that affects us or our understanding of what the Christian life is about. I don't know how many, how many of you have ever heard a sermon on the ascension of Jesus Christ? How many have heard a sermon that was specifically looking at this? One or two, three, just a handful of us. Why? Why? This is one of the most important teachings and doctrines of the scriptures. Without this, we are all dead men. Without the ascension of Jesus Christ to the right hand of the Father, there is no forgiveness of sins. You understand that? You will understand it when we're done with this. I hope. Jesus' trial. Matthew 26, 63 and 64. Caiaphas, the high priest of that year, had asked Jesus to come before them, the rulers of the temple. They had arrested him and they'd question him. Tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. What have you said yourself? Caiaphas said, Are you the Son of God? Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He's quoting Daniel 7.13. Caiaphas, the high priest, knew that scripture. That's what they were looking for, was for the Messiah to come. And that's where he would be. And that's what they were expecting. But it wasn't this guy. It wasn't this Galilean. It wasn't this Nazarene in their minds and their thinking. It was nothing like what they perceived that the Messiah was going to be like. Look at the contrast between the Son of God that Caiaphas asks him, are you the Son of God? And he says, you will see the Son of Man. That is very significant for us, folks. We who are coming to know who Jesus Christ is, it's very, very important for us to declare Jesus Christ to be Son of God. But you know, there's another group of beings that when they see Jesus, they don't call him the Son of Man. They call him the Son of God. Why? We recognize Jesus as the Son of God. But it's very important for us to know that he is the Son of Man. He's the one that came for us. Born of a virgin. Grew up, walked, and was tempted in all points like we are as men.
fulfilling all of the expectations of the law and the fulfillment of the law. He kept every bit of it. As God? No, we've always talked about Jesus didn't pull out his God card, did he? And said, I'm God. Did you know that Jesus never once said he was the son of God? He's the son of man. The son of man on our part. Sitting at the right hand of God. And that's what he was quoting out of Daniel. Way back, hundreds of years previous, that Caiaphas the priest, who would condemn him to death, and when he said, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. Go home and read what follows. Caiaphas got so angry, and he said, you are not the Christ, and they came forward and they beat him in the face with their fists. That was his first beating before he went to the cross. They were so angry and incensed. Why? They thought the Messiah, the coming king, the one who would redeem them, would be the son of God. But he comes as the son of man and accomplishes what we could not do. And Jesus had said, because I have done what you could not do, you are without excuse. You are sinful. You are under judgment. And he accomplished it as a man. That is the man of heaven, Jesus Christ, standing at the right hand of God the Father, taking his place, standing first, coming as presenting what? Presenting us and our sins. I have accomplished what you had for me. Jesus is indicating. Second point is Jesus' ascension. And I got a little bit ahead of myself here. But Mark 16, 19. So then when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Taking that place of authority. Taking that place as the Godhead for us. The man of heaven. The one who ascended. Who escaped. Who is enthroned today at the Father's right hand. Peter's message. Before Jesus left, he had told his disciples to go to Jerusalem and to remain there until the gift of the Holy Spirit had been given to them. The gift from the Father. It was the one time, I think, that the disciples obeyed Jesus strictly. And they did go to Jerusalem. And they did wait. Peter's message after the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2, 34 and 35. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself, David, says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That was 
the crux, that was the heart, that was the very core of what the message was that Peter gave on the day of Pentecost when all of them had received the Holy Spirit in their lives. That now that Jesus was ascended there and the Holy Spirit now had come inside of them, dwelling in them, they then understood that that is the same Jesus. The Spirit of Jesus in us is the Holy Spirit. It's God in spirit in us. It is Jesus' spirit in us. That's how we can call ourselves Christian. Not because we've been made good and and righteous and we know that our sins are forgiven. It's because now God can live in us. This human vessel of ours that's so wicked and imperfect, it's because he's cleansed us. He's set us free from condemnation. That's what we talked about all the way through Romans so many times. That's what the Christian life is all about. It's not about try, 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 strive, strive, strive. Let's go now. Let's get this job done. It's that we rest. We look to God for his strength, for his word, and for the power of the Holy Spirit to work through us. When we talk with our relatives or when we talk with our fellow employees about, yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, I believe in Jesus. Do you want to hear about him? I'd like to share with you. We do that in the power of the Holy Spirit. If we do it in our flesh and trying, well, my pastor says I've got to witness, so I'm going to try to witness. Don't rely on what the pastor says. But re- <laughs> Thanks, Doc. I, I really appreciate that affirmation. But what the Holy Spirit says to you and teaches you about how to share the truth and the reality of Jesus Christ. We need his spirit in us. We need to yield to that Holy Spirit so that we can be effective witnesses. That's what the Christian life is all about. Point four. Stephen was a one of the disciples. We don't hear much about him. Uh, he had some special jobs in the church. But as the disciples were then beginning to identify themselves, particularly now that there was over 3,000 that had come to be baptized in one day, just in their witnessing that day. And I don't know how they baptized 3,000 people in one day. That's a lot of water. That's a lot of activity. And it must have been an incredible baptism. I've never been to one like that. But anyway, back to Stephen. He was giving testimony, and they didn't like what he said. He wasn't really Peter or even Paul. He was just simple servant Stephen, giving his testimony. But he brought such conviction to the people there that they couldn't stand what he was preaching. He was saying everything against what they had been thinking I'm okay because I follow the law. And he was saying, no, you need to recognize Jesus. 
You need to know Jesus. And so they got so angry with him, they picked up rocks and they began to throw those rocks at him until he was almost dead. And then it says, but Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. I think at this point, when Stephen was being stoned, the Son of God stands as the authority. And heaven is opened and Stephen sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God the Father on high. I wonder how many times Jesus has stood when a saint has been persecuted. I wonder if Jesus stood when Stan Conrad passed away. A saint coming home. He has the authority. Then number five is Paul's gospel. We've read this. We looked at it a few months ago. Romans 8, 34. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Interceding means He's not there kneeling, praying. He is our advocate. He has already brought himself, the Lamb of God, resurrected, risen, and is in heaven at the Father's right hand. Task completed as far as Jesus is concerned. And we're making kind of a subtle shift here. It's not that Jesus is praying, well, I see that Ron's getting old and uh, needs some uh, a, a vacation. He's kind of losing it mentally. And you know, this last week was, was kind of a hard week for me and Katie. We are getting old and we are needing some rest. But it's not like Jesus is saying, Father, Ron and Katie really need you right now. No, what this is talking about is that in Christ, all of our needs are met. They're already a signed check. It's already something that we can draw upon now. And his blood, his sacrifice on our behalf, every one of us, is not like he needs to go out and we'll, let, we'll, we'll fix it. No. It's already there. We just need to walk in the understanding that everything that I am in Christ Jesus is yes and amen. It's completed. We need to change our thinking from striving from day to day to understanding where we are positionally. And that's what we were talking about in Romans. And Paul got it and tried to convey it to us. Our life in Christ, that's what it's talking about. 
In Colossians, also Paul, by the way, 3.1. Therefore, if we have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's where we are. Seeking the things that are above. Knowing that all that we ask, all those requests, everything that we really need for righteousness and godliness, he's already given it. Does that mean that we don't have to pray like we, we, we just prayed this morning? No, we can make our requests known. But know that in Christ, we're not begging and begging and begging and praying. And if we get, okay, here's a, here's a pet peeve that I have. You know, it's very handy these days with email, Twitter, Facebook, FaceTime, Face, uh, whatever you call it, <laughs> to punch out thousands of requests out there. And I get these. And sometimes they say, well, if there's enough people praying, maybe this will be answered. No, that's not the way it works. That is not the way it works. Otherwise, let's just believe in the lottery, okay? So if you buy enough tickets, you'll become a millionaire and you won't have to work the rest of your life. What a lie. What a lie. That's not the way it works. That's not how prayer works. That's not how our relationship with the Father through Jesus Christ works. It's already answered. It's already done. We need to walk in who God has called us to be. Does that mean that we don't give a a, a request? No. It means that we can, but if 10,000 people pray for this, it's not going to make a hoot of difference. That's not the basis on which God answers prayer. We need to understand that. What is prayer? It's coming close to the Father through Jesus Christ and walking in his way. Keep seeking the things above. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Christ's authority. 1 Peter 3, 21 and 22. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's we're jumping right in here in some of Peter's teaching. You can look at that at home. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. This is a hard one. But I think it's very important that we understand that Jesus Christ in his death, his resurrection, and his ascension encountered and overcame and showed himself to be the God-man, the one who came to earth and had God's blessing, and he made the way for us. And all angels, all authorities, all powers, strengths, nations, courts, trials, accusations, judgments, All of those mean nothing 
to the one who stands, who sits and says, this is my son. This is my daughter in me. That's what Peter is talking about when he uses Noah and the ark in this chapter. Jesus is our ark. And so if you look at 1 Peter, keep that in mind. That's the picture of what God was doing for us in Christ Jesus. Yes, it was a shame of those thousands and millions of people, perhaps who perished in the flood. But for those who were believing the promise, who were standing in faith, looking to things above, that was the security. That's where their salvation was. And that's where ours is. Jesus is the one who carries us to the Father. And those angels and those authorities and those powers have been subjected to Jesus Christ. And he overcame that. What is the ultimate strategy and victory? What is the purpose of all of this? Where are we going? What is happening with this teaching? Where does it end? What is the result of it? Hebrews 1, 3 says, When he, Jesus, had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Like we already mentioned, Jesus comes before the Father. I have accomplished the things that you sent me to to accomplish. He didn't need to show the Father, but I'm sure the marks in his hand, the scars on his body, and that we will see someday, I believe, in heaven. That's who he is, our sacrifice lamb. He'll always be that to us. Another Hebrews passage. By the way, I have decided that this fall we will go through Hebrews. Hebrews 10, 12 and 13. Having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, all of those sacrifices over and over and over and over again, how many animals were slaughtered in the whole history of Israel? Can you even imagine? But with one sacrifice, Jesus Christ himself for all time all sins, waiting for that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. Who are Jesus' enemies? Who are his enemies? We could be like a Judas, walking very closely with Jesus, but not really having our hearts in tune, having our hearts in some other place waiting for the time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. We talked about Peter last week. Peter was contrary to Jesus several times and didn't really understand. We also have, have walked in his ways, in the Lord's ways, and not really understood what we were doing. God sees our hearts. The amazing thing is that we, the church, are all that is left.
for God to use. There's nothing else. We're at the end of the history of the world. And I'm not saying, okay, this this week, folks, now, just don't worry about paying your, your mortgage. Uh, don't worry about what's going to happen next month because this is the end. No, no, that's not the end. This isn't the end. I'm sure it isn't. If I said it is next week, it sure isn't next week because <laughs> no man knows the time or the hour. We need to be ready. The point is that we, as the church, you could say, are God's last resort. Boy, is God ever in trouble. But you know, on the other hand, God is working in so many of our hearts these days. And not just in our, I'm not talking about our church. I'm talking about the church worldwide. But there is a spiritual battle that is going on and it's furious. It's a furious thing that is happening. Not only in North Korea, shooting off pop rockets. We're not worried about him. That's not significant. That's not indicative of the end of the age. What is more indicative of the age? And if you want to read Matthew 25, in that chapter, it's talking about wars, rumors of wars, disasters, earthquakes, that man has nothing to do with. And the greatest thing that is happening is the deception of the church. The deception of people is mentioned more by Jesus Christ than about wars, earthquakes, famines. There is a deception coming and it is already with us. There's a book that's been made into a movie and now it's also in Japanese. In English, it's called The Shack. The portrayal is false of who God is. It is a incredible deception. It's a feel-good movie. We haven't seen it. We have read through parts of, of the book many years ago, 10 years or more ago. It is deception. There is deception going on in the church today, not just by movies or books like The Shack, but also leaders that are becoming so loose in their teaching that they are distorting the gospel of God and making it a laughingstock, literally. You've heard of... Uh, Charles Stanley, a preacher, teacher. But his son now, Andy Stanley, is a deceiver. Blatantly, he's a pastor of 35,000 member church, but is deceiving them by saying, it doesn't matter what the Bible says. Well, I don't know if we say that the Bible doesn't really count. Then where is our faith and what is he preaching? What is he teaching? Nothing. Nothing there that you can put your hope and trust in. And for sure not the ascension of Jesus Christ to the right hand of, of the Father on high. 
Deception has already started, and that is the sign of the end of the age. These are serious days for us. We need to be reading, understanding, asking the Holy Spirit to give us insight and knowledge and and ability to discern what the scriptures are saying so that we not be deceived, so that we have the real truth in our hearts and not what some preacher or TV preacher or someone that's producing books. The word of God is our only trust, our only hope. Don't leave it. Seek those things that are above, and that's how we understand. That'll keep us from strain. We are his church. What's the ultimate strategy and victory? His church. We are all that he has here on earth. And he wants to use us. He wants to equip us. He wants us to be his witnesses. And it means that we have to come together and focus our eyes and our thoughts and our thinking on Jesus Christ and who he is. And not on, well, I think that the church should be this way or it should be that way. Or the church is really this. And if we all come together of of different churches and denominations, then we'll really be Christ's church. No, that's not the way it started. I don't think that's the way it's going to end. And this kind of gathering is the kind of gathering where the Spirit of the Lord can manifest His self to us. When we're all together around the throne, then the church will be the bride of Christ. And that's what we're all looking for. Right now, we're pilgrims. Right now, we're helping each other over the last ditch or through the last passage. We're being his witnesses in the place that he put us. Perhaps there's somebody at your office or your school that is really hurting, and you know it. And other students do too, or other people in the office do too. But God is giving you understanding. That person needs Jesus. And you are God's answer for that person. It may be just a very simple word of, I'm praying for you. I understand that you're really struggling right now. Can I pray for you? That's the gifts that God has given us, to be able to lift one another up. And not just because this person is a Christian. The non-Christians really need to have us praying for them. Remember several years ago, I was in a shop here in Japan, and there was a foreigner there. He was struggling in Japanese. Anyway, he, he was actually French, I found out. And I left the shop, and then I had a sense, this person needs prayer. So I went back in the shop, and I said, hi, my name's Ron. Um, why, why are you here in the shop? And he said, well, my wife just passed away. And I'm here to buy something in remembrance of her. So I said, can I pray for you? So I 
put my hand on Pierre. The clerk was standing on the other side of the desk looking and I put my hands, hand on his shoulder and prayed for him. And just like I am right now, tears were rolling down his, his cheeks. Pierre was a Catholic, I learned. But he'd never, ever known that God ever answered prayer. And by that simple prayer, Pierre became a real believer. He married one of the girls from our church. And they went back to France and were witnesses back in France. God can use you. It's simple. It's just being led by the Holy Spirit. And it's not mysterious. It's just having an ear, having a heart to listen. And if nothing had happened with my just praying simply for Pierre, that's okay. The next person that God leads Pierre to possibly would have the opportunity that we had of seeing him come to the Lord. Plant the seeds where you're planted. Walk in the Spirit. Seek those things that are above, not on things on the earth. Jesus Christ is sitting at the right hand of the Father on high. Over and over and over again, that's what the gospel is about. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the fact that we have been left here and sometimes we wish we could go home. But we thank you that you have left us here. And so, Lord, we just stand and praise you that it's in you alone that we trust you are a source of strength our power in jesus name amen